0: on everybody and welcome back to the channel uh today i'm excited to have uh one of my best friends miles and or christian cameron however you want to you know go about your day and however you want to read him
1: but uh christian how are you doing today uh we're both great uh (laughs) i really wish i could split my screen and wear two different t-shirts just to anyway uh thanks very much for having me uh i as you know you know we're we're old pals at this point but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it's great to be here it's seven days till artifact space is released and Woo-woo. i'm ludicrously excited considering this is book 43. <laughs> i mean you got to get excited about every book right uh, actually i do maybe i'm easily pleased i don't know but but i actually do every book is fresh i kind of go like ooh, and i have a book coming out and yeah
0: best every time you get that box of books you're like i wonder what's in here
1: (laughs) once in a while the boxes of books like you should see my basement i i have suits of armor uh i have reenacting gear i have little men and women uh and aliens and orcs um uh, armies and armies and armies i have terrain for all of my little people and then i have boxes of books boxes of other people's books Uh, because I mostly only keep research books upstairs in the library and then boxes of my own books, which is kind of embarrassing. So once in a while, I just hand them out to people and go like, please come by my house and have, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. You'll have to
0: to give a tour of your basement sometime.
1: uh, It's actually not a bad idea. It would probably be entertaining because there's also a jewelry shop and a metal shop. You know, and how
0: big is your basement
1: <laughs> well, it's pretty big like i could i guess i could walk down there but i don't have a good camera set up at the moment it's uh it you know it's we got a normal toronto house and we have a basement and um uh, uh aurora simmons who's my co-instructor and uh anyway she has a jewelry shop down there and you know then that's really just an extension of my metal shop because as anybody listening all three people who've ever owned a suit of armor you have to be able to repair armor if you own armor right yeah
0: yeah especially uh you know especially when you
1: when you walk through the snow on it <laughs> That, that kind of thing that's that's just cleaning and oiling and that's i'd love to say something arrogant like that's what squires are for but it's surprising how hard it is to get a good squire these days <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly so uh so what have you been up to since uh since tbrcon i mean it's been almost six months i guess since we last chatted what's what's been going on uh done
1: a bunch of writing um in fact you know the the two big things in my house are well uh, my my partner, my wife has uh, a real job, and uh, that that takes up a whole bunch of time. Uh, but I have a daughter about to graduate from high school in COVID nineteen, and if that doesn't sound like a thing taking up time, let me let me just course correct for you. Uh, that has been a lot of time. Uh, it's real good. She's actually going to graduate. She did just fine. But that that was uh, you know very stressful on on people in high school. Probably all kids in school. But especially high school, doing things remotely, doing things online. Anyway, so there was that. Uh, I did re- write uh, most of a fantasy novel that um, we'll see. Like I wrote it kind of for fun. It's a long story, but I, I guess I'll really fast just say uh, it's called *The Sword*. It's actually a prequel to uh, *Cold Iron*, written about a, about maybe a thousand years before Aranther is born. Uh, and it sort of answers the question of how did this sword, which has a person embedded in it, come to be? And mm. also kind of the, uh, the darker and slightly more comical side of, uh, of being possessed by a sword. Um, uh, and, and in rough outline, and it isn't meant to be a comedy, I, but I have enjoyed writing parts of it to be funny. A very bad man, a sort of annoyingly bad man, like a lazily bad man, uh, gets a magic sword that is relentlessly good and causes him to look at the world, the sword just makes him see like slavery and oppression and things he's ignored all his life. If you think that there might be a political overtone to this, you're (laughs) totally right. Um, uh, And uh, I've frankly been having a ball writing it. It it may never sell to anyone, but um, who knows, maybe I'll just put it up on my website, Uh, but I've been having a real good time with that. And, uh, and then more recently I started writing Deep Black, which is the sequel to Artifact Space, which I'm pretty sure is what we're here to talk about. So I'll just whip out a copy and go like, I think this is the most beautiful cover I have ever had. It's
0: gorgeous, and, absolutely. Uh,
1: that was my plug. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, so I started writing Deep Black, which I'm, you know, uh, I should not say, you know, quite so often, <laughs> it's Artifact Space, got dumped into my brain. I've told you this story. I shan't run it past you again. But it- No, it, you it need to.
0: Go, go ahead, go ahead.
1: <laughs> well, I was sitting in a movie theater watching Little Women with my wife and uh, a whole lot of stuff apparently came together in my head all in uh, about, I'd say 15 seconds. And suddenly the whole novel went plop into my head. And I spent the next 46 days writing it down, but it was like I already knew everything. Um, that's actually not true in one respect. The part that wasn't done for me was the world building. Um, I had to actually do all the world building. I got the it's as if I got the plot and characters, but I had to figure out like why, why are there huge ships in space and other other things like that. So that was that was fun. Deep black is different. Uh, I won't pretend I don't know what's happening. I know the whole arc through the end of the series, although I will also confess to you and no one's going to hear this podcast right this is this is just you and me talking privately that i'd love to write 25 books in this universe because now that i now that i'm in it no it's it's weird i just i am so in love with this universe and i keep thinking of side stories that have nothing to do with marka and borrow or any of the main characters and and i'm like i had this whole idea for a sort of bouncer hunter hunter trying to go good on one of the worlds and i'm like I, no, I don't think this is Star Trek. I don't think they're gonna want the the 31 spinoffs. Anyway, uh, however, I'm writing Deep Black and uh, uh, it's different because I have to resolve the deliberate mystery of the first book. Uh, and I'm being helped. Uh, sorry, I brought a prop. I'm being helped because I love to do research, right? You know, uh, I write historical novels and I do a ton of research. And I, uh, even when don't. I write, even when I, write fantasy novels i like wear the armor and swing the swords and try and find a wyvern to kill so i'll figure out how how all of that works so um yes i'm trying to do research for science fiction which i know everyone should be laughing at this point uh yes i look into the future with my crystal ball no but um uh caleb sharf uh actually a pretty famous guy uh astrobiologist astrophysicist and um this is a book called the ascent of information and I just want to say that it has been incredibly helpful in helping me sort of both create and solve the mysteries and just came out this week, by the way. Um, and he writes for all the big scientific magazines and, you know, you want to have a good look at the future, read the people who are actually doing the science, um, uh, earlier this week, I had the, the real fun of doing a, uh, interview with popular science and all they wanted to know was like, how do you use real science? Um, That's awesome. and, and that was super fun. And I basically said like, okay, so I wasn't that great at science in, uh, in university. I took physics for poets, but I do know how to read other smart people's views on, on physics, um, uh, that seemed to satisfy them. <laughs> I, I just followed
0: the smart people's advice and, uh. And that seems to work
1: out for me. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you know, one of my favorite quotes of all time is uh, uh, supposedly FDR said, I'm not a first rate mind. I'm a third rate mind who knows how to choose first rate minds and then listen to them. And I'm like, yeah, there's a that 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 may define good leadership at some point, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. There's there's, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of truth behind that. (laughs) So so how many how many books do you have? Planned so far in this in this series is it just two or do you actually want to do 25 <laughs> for for
1: artifact space yeah uh uh three okay and does it um, and does it have
0: a series title I, I don't know if i've seen that yeah
1: in, arcana impure the secrets ooh. of empire oh i like that yeah fancy well, <laughs> in 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 case i i'm really speaking to the world not to you but uh in case you you don't know this behind um, what might on the surface appear to be a pretty straightforward space opera is a hundred thousand year genocide. It's just lurking out there. There's a whole race and they're gone. And as the book progresses, this goes from a sort of interesting factoid to a more interesting factoid, right? You know, and you, you kind of go like, where'd they go? Um, and uh, that's going to turn out to be a huge determinant in book two. It's going to turn out to be sort of like the murder mystery. It goes from the elephant in the room to like, oh, we need to solve this because, because maybe our apparent allies aren't really very nice. Mm. I gotcha. Intriguing. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm here for it. <laughs> I'm i I'm, I'm I'm doing my best. I mean, that is like a meta meta plot. You know, there's like there's like the story arc, and then above that, there's sort of a meta plot about some politics. And then maybe above that, there's like aliens you've never even met and a 150,000 year old conflict, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe above that, there's like <laughs> some sort of quantum structure and then God. I don't know. I, I really don't I, I don't worry about above the meta plot that I'm writing, but it it's, could be there.
0: It's like the tip of an iceberg that's also on top of an ice, another iceberg that's also yeah. maybe above or below a pyramid.
1: <laughs> to, to quote Terry Pratchett, <laughs> turtles all the way down.
0: <laughs> so i kind of want to start off so i know i know we had a podcast chat uh gosh it's been I don't know, a year and a half now it feels, like it's, sometimes it feels like it's never it hasn't been long and sometimes it feels like it's been forever but you know podcasts it's it's been kind of a while but tell, tell everybody a little bit about yourself um kind of how how you got into writing and i know a couple of my uh my contributors want to know how you got into uh realistic swordplay
1: That's a big question. Uh, So how did I get into writing? Well, once upon a time uh, I was in high school and I really liked writing. I wasn't very good at it. And I wrote a novel that is so bad that you will never see any part of it. Not even the first page, not even to get a hundred likes on Twitter. Nope, that's not gonna happen. Um, uh, And then I wrote a fantasy novel, absolutely equally as bad. Um, I had just read a novel that I adored by a woman named Ellen Kushner. And I tried to copy it. Like I, I can't. I can't even begin to describe how bad. Anyway, um, still like Ellen Kushner, though. Uh, and then, um, then I was in the Navy, and I learned a lot about writing from the Navy. I learned to write fast. I learned to not nitpick uh, what I had written. And then um, I wrote eight spy novels with my dad, and my dad was a career novelist and also an academic, and. Um, also a very, uh, I don't know if you've ever worked with your dad. Uh, it's an experience that many of my friends share often building a garden or, um, you know, putting something up. And I think all working with dad shares a certain level of, um, criticism. That's not as friendly as you might've expected from <laughs> well, s- little bit. Just a little bit. someone from someone who isn't your dad. Uh, and that's what writing was like, yep. All the time and some harsh words were said, uh, but I did learn a ton. I, I mean, sorry, uh, my dad was a very good writer. I, I sometimes worry that he was a better writer than I will ever be. And I I did learn a ton from him. I believed things that were false and I could tell your viewers if you like, but um, uh, I I believed things that weren't true about how writing worked and dad taught me otherwise, and that was really great. Um, so those three things made me a writer and I sort of backed into being a writer because I was a clandestine operations officer, which is a fancy way of saying I was a spy. And uh, I had an idea for a spy novel, (laughs) fancy that. Uh, And I rattled it off to my dad thinking he'd write it. And instead he said, we should write it. And he already had an agent. So I didn't have to, like the things I didn't have to do, I didn't have to find an agent. I've still got the same agent I had in 1996 uh my dad's agent it's like i inherited her that's really unfair <laughs> by the way because she is a good friend um <laughs> uh and um i don't know uh, i love to write i would probably write if nobody paid me isn't that a sad comment um and i think now it's you, because you i do
0: love- write some that you don't get paid for though right because don't you I do. uh you, you do some some stuff on your on your website and uh because i know you there was a, a story you were writing that you were
1: releasing like a chapter at a time i think to your subscribers yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I just want to say if any of my subscribers are listening that as soon as I am done with Deep Black, I am going to go through and finish my Rangers of Shadow Deep novel, mostly because I want to know how it ends. And that perfectly describes my failing as a writer. I just want to tell these stories and sometimes I am literally telling them to me. I mean, you know, I hope to you, but um, I, I can't stop. Uh, and um, and I'm very affected by things like reenacting and and, sword fighting which i will get back to i did notice that was part of your question and and, and it, was gaming. A, it was a very complicated question <laughs> and, but and gaming uh i was on a great con, uh panel at world con back when we remember when we used to have like cons where we actually all sat together and i've forgotten I everything previous to last year is just yeah uh bc before covid yeah. uh, anyway in dublin i was on a great panel about gaming and and uh fantasy and I would never uh, lie to anyone about this. I am definitely affected by games, uh, you know. Like, and I use games as a sandbox often to test things out, like both uh, plot lines and sometimes just fight scenes. You know, like you want to have a big boss fight, uh, you know, with magic. I can't do that in the backyard. I haven't figured out how to throw a fireball, but I can make it happen in a game, and then go like, oh, that's a little unbalanced, or that wasn't as tense as I wanted it to be. Anyway. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, when I find a game I love as much as Rangers of Shadow Deep, I really just wanted to support the author, uh, who I thought had written a brilliant indie game and deserved more attention than he was getting. So, uh, so I started a novel, and I will eventually finish it because it's fun um, and it has lots of camping. I love to write camping. Uh, and how did I get into how did I r- get into fighting? Uh, sorry, I have more to say about camping. Uh, it's it's become Wait, a joke. We can joke just have place. a whole
0: episode about camping.
1: Well. Uh, it, it's it's become a joke amongst my friends see i do a thing over on twitter called writing fighting uh which has gotten mildly you know small time famous and that's great and really fun but i really am sort of doing it as a public service because i want to help people who don't get to own armor and sharp weapons and stuff at least get a survey of how all that stuff works uh but for it's amazing
0: videos- I-, I love watching your videos they're fantastic
1: And I try and keep them somewhat funny and somewhat lighthearted because, frankly, endless amounts of weapons and violence aren't that funny. Um, uh, But for two weeks this summer or maybe more, I'm hijacking it and I'm going to call it writing camping. Um, And that's because uh, one of my favorite modern fantasy novels of all time uh, is Patrick Rothfuss's Name of the Wind, which I think is a brilliant novel. but camping man it doesn't work the way you think it does and uh, he admitted that in an interview that's why i feel completely able to say that without in any way offending someone who i think is a brilliant author but um uh, i actually years ago almost sat down to write him a letter going like can i explain how you light a fire with flint and steel um <laughs> uh, I, and i wasn't a fantasy writer at the time right so it would have just been a dumbass fan fan letter whereas now it would be a pompous non-fan letter and that changes the tone. Um, but I really want to, I no, I, I, I'm I, gonna make uh, two or three or four or nine episodes of um, literally, this is how you make a fire with medieval equipment. This is how you boil, wa- I'm not kidding. This is how you boil water with all medieval equipment. This is what it looks like. This is what making a mule looks like with all medieval equipment. Um, just stuff like that, because people write these scenes and um, I once heard a brilliant soliloquy by another fantasy writer, and it was quite brilliant, uh, where she invade for half an hour about how people ate things in the Middle Ages that weren't stew. <laughs> and, I, and I loved her for it. I was like, yes, you are my kind of writer. Please, <laughs> please tell them why everything wasn't stew. And oh, by the way, they probably didn't have potatoes in medieval Europe. But <laughs> no. um, uh, so, uh How did i get into swordsmanship you thought i'd forgotten but this is a Mm -hmm. billy Connolly routine and i will (laughs) gradually circle around back to the beginning um you don't uh, forget anything i I know that i know that about you (laughs) um wow tell my wife she would laugh her ass off Uh, (laughs) so so, so uh uh i went to see a movie called the three musketeers when i was 11. it had michael york and raquel walsh I still think it's one of the best fight movies ever filmed. Um, And when I was done, I said to my dad, like, I'd like to learn to fence. Well, it turned out that not only did my dad already know how to fence, but he had taught stage fighting because my dad was a theater professional. And uh, so we started with aluminum swords in the backyard. Uh, Some fingers were broken. Um, And then we moved to ever better swords. And then I went and took fencing lessons. and then. I won a bunch of fencing tournaments, and then I was really into fencing. So um, fencing conquered baseball in my life. I was going to be a professional baseball player, I mean, at least inside my head. Uh, That was my plan for the future at age 12, but um, by the time I was 16, I was gonna go to the Olympics and be the first American to win uh, foil, epee and sabre gold medals in the Olympics, which did not go down quite that way um, uh, at all, But, but I did okay. Won, won a bunch of tournaments, and I fenced a lot. And it sort of took up my entire teenage life. Um, and then uh, I stopped. And I stopped for a bunch of reasons. There were girls. Uh, girls never cared a bit about fencing. I actually took my first serious girlfriend to the Empire State Games in New York State. And after I had, I felt devastatingly and brilliantly beaten a an opponent I was really worried about. I said, did you see that? And she said, who won? Um, <laughs>
0: Needless to say, that one didn't stick around long,
1: huh? <laughs> uh, no, no. It's just it's not like being a quarterback on a football team. Like there's nothing to see. The two blades go like pop, 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 pop. pop. A buzzer goes off, and yeah. <laughs> so, um, but that gets to the heart of actually what disappointed me about fencing. It was never the Three Musketeers. Um, it was completely stylized. Now I now realize, as somebody who teaches all kinds of fighting that I learned incredibly important lessons about how martial arts work from fencing. And uh, it, it's it's not for nothing that Bruce Lee thought it was a fabulous martial art when he looked at it and kept telling all of his Asian martial arts friends, like, look at the things they've discovered because those ruthless minds of the enlightenment, they just took everything to pieces and started looking at them. Fencing has a lot to offer, but it is very stylized. And I wanted like big swords and stuff. So I fought in the SEA for a while uh, in armor, and that was interesting. And I started to fight in armor, but I was like, mm, this is not how people fought in the Middle Ages. And pardon me, if you're in the SEA, uh, it just it, it, it didn't look right. And the swords are wood. And um, And anyway, I did a whole bunch of other fencing and reenacting. And then about 20 years ago, I ran into a bunch of people who were living my dream. <laughs> they had fabulous suits of armor, and they were hitting each other with real swords. And, uh, and I was like, wait, you mean during my military career, you invented the perfect hobby for me, and now I'm too old? Uh, so I, I really got into the whole fighting and armor thing probably 20 years after my body would have been really happy for it. And there's nothing like being a 59-year-old tottering around in a suit of armor uh, in a sport that is really intended for very muscular 24-year-olds. Fabulous. <laughs> Fabulous.
0: Uh, well, you you wear it great. It look it looks phenomenal on you. So yeah. it I, you, you know better.
1: what, I enjoy it enormously. Um, uh, anybody who's an athlete knows you slow down enormously starting at age fifty, and so what used to be my huge advantage, because I have really Olympic level speed at least, um, is dwindling each year, and that's very sad and muscle mass is dwindling each year. And I have a fabulous armor in the Czech Republic who I want to give a shout out to. His name is Jiri Klipak. He's a genius. And he keeps making me armor that just gets lighter and lighter, and lighter. Um, without cheating.
0: So sw- a swell <laughs>
1: without, without cheating and using titanium or anything like that, just, just steel and chainmail. Um, but the whole kit, because. Uh, I know you're going to, I can just pluck this one out of your brain. I know you're going to ask this. The whole kit whereas depending on what I'm wearing exactly, because I have different things I can put on, between 80 and 105 pounds um, when I've got it all all on. Uh, yeah, And I know that because I have to carry it through airport customs when I go to fight in Italy, <laughs> and it's super fun. I have two suitcases and no clothes. <laughs> <laughs> You just, just have a carry-on with some shorts and some undershirts. I'm I'm at my business class luggage limit <laughs> and all I have for clothes is what I've stuffed inside the armor. It's it's um very surprising to various landladies and hoteliers. Um because <laughs> the two huge pieces of luggage roll into the lobby and I think they go like, huh, oh, a very serious customer. And then I'm in the same shorts five days in a row.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> just lounging by the pool. <laughs> I can just imagine, you know, you haven't, you are the bill boy come down or something and try to like lift one up and you're like,
1: what's the world are you carrying in here? You know, honest to goodness, when I see anybody in a hotel staff who's like over the age of 30, I just go like, I got it, bro. Please yeah. let me, I don't want to break somebody. <laughs> uh, and I can't afford the heavy tips. This is the other thing I, I would say is that, you know, I, oddly fighting in armor isn't a rich man's sport, but it ought to be. The armor is expensive and going overseas to fight is expensive and you know like yeah i i am a modestly successful fantasy author but not a like oh yes i'm on a jet to england tomorrow it's not like that with my two suitcases (laughs) with my two suitcases of armor yeah there was a couple of i I know you don't need to know this but there were a couple of great years where air transat which is a like fly-by-night cheap tourist airline in canada uh, decided my armor was sporting goods, and it flew for free, and then they changed their minds. That uh... those, were the, those were the good days. <laughs> it is sporting goods. It's a sport. Anyway. Yeah.
0: It's a sport. It's just not as widely popular as, as most sports.
1: I, I tried to convince them one year. I, another guy ahead of me in the line had a surfboard, and I'm like, I take up much less room than that. <laughs> That's all that matters. Right. <laughs> so um so i want to know
0: what what really i guess struck a chord where you were like i'm going to start doing these writing fighting videos i mean i know you know you. everybody talks about how realistic your fight scenes are in your books and you're one of the best at writing fight scenes in your novels you know along with your de castell and gwen and so forth you know that's why we had the panel at tbrcon but what what was what was like i guess the final nail in the coffin like okay i'm gonna start doing all these videos because you've got like over 70 now right
1: yeah uh 74 this morning um so curiously it was actually another writer uh peter mclean and he actually asked me which was very nice of him and you know i want to put in a plug right now for the social in social media um you know what really works on social media Having friends and being nice to other people, um, and it's funny because I keep running into people who are like, "Oh, all people ever do on Twitter is you know yell at each other," and I'm like, "That is not my experience. At least with authors, right. I find that that authors tend to feed each other." And I I owe this one to to Peter. He fed me. He sent a video of a really cool, complex and not immediately comprehensible yaido move. Yaido uh, is a japanese martial art about drawing and using a katana um, and it's a solo art so you demonstrate and are tested and i'm pretty sure this was a test uh, at a very high high level on particular set plays that are like scenarios uh, like um you're walking down the street and somebody attacks you from behind a screen on the left side so you have to step away draw maybe while straight ironing them and then cut like you, you get what i'm saying and i i, I did some IAIDO, and I loved it. And in fact, IAIDO, I find very informative for looking at European set piece moves. Probably too complicated. Anyway, um, uh, so Peter sent me this, and in effect said, hey, Fokion one what's going on, or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but like, what's this about? So uh, I had to stare at it for a while, and then I wrote him an answer. And then later that afternoon, I thought, like, OK, I think my answer was incomprehensible. I'll make him a video. So I went in the backyard, and there was snow and and ice, and I didn't have a handy Japanese sword, so I used a European sword, and uh, and I was really just talking about like why the draw from the scabbard is so important and almost never covered in fantasy novels, right? Mm-hmm. People always just magically have their swords in their hands, and that is odd, at least for American writers, because to me, we all know that the draw is super important in a Western six gun fight. Mm-hmm. So how come we don't think a draw is really important in a sword fight? And I guess people imagine that when you're 300 meters away, you just draw your sword, but like not in a tavern fight, right? So, right. so I did a video, and I had never ever in my life had 150 likes on a video. It's not my life. I mean, I'm I'm old, I'm old, and Twitter is not my, was not my métier, right? So I just kind of went, oh well, that's super fun. And then a whole bunch of people asked questions. You actually might have been one of the people probably. who asked questions. Uh, and so I thought, okay, I'll make five of these and I'll answer the questions. So I just started answering you guys' questions with videos. And here we are, Like, uh, uh, and and now I'm gonna do black powder guns because because uh, Sebastian teased me. No, that's not really re- why, but it might be. No, It's of, probably part of it. <laughs> part of it. Um, uh, but um yeah i'm gonna do flintlocks when i'm done with armor oh so Uh, cool um because i own a ton of them i own the only real legitimate flintlock breech loader amongst other things so that'll be fun um and i'll be able to talk about things that do and don't happen with flintlocks and i don't know anyway
0: well because i know i know we talked to we've probably talked on this a a couple of times you know we, we always talk about the back scabbard and how it's like one of the worst things that you can imagine, but like so many fantasy stories have them. but it's like, how, how can you realistically pull it out? You know? And and then, you know, I think we had a, a mention about the Witcher and they had made it to where, I guess it was at least a little bit more, you know, there's a little more ease in getting it out, but you know, if you're shoved up against the wall, you're pretty much screwed no matter what. So you better have it out before you get to that point. And I think that kind of led to you showing about, you know, how you can pull a sword out of a scab, but you actually have to like, at least kind of
1: jut it out a little bit because it catches, isn't that right? Yep. Yep. And you you turn it a little with your hand and push it back on your hip. one of the opening fight scenes in my—it's not meant to be comic. It's not a comic novel, but I am getting my points across. Uh, a a much bigger and possibly better fighter who's wearing a sword in a back scabbard is shoved against a wall and ruthlessly killed by the protagonist. <laughs> it's just—it's—it's it's, it's like a what do you what do you call it? it's like an homage. It's a reverse homage.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so tell me where, where can you find, uh, I guess your backlog of writing, fighting videos, and then I guess, where can you, I guess it will be the same place you can find the writing camping. And then are you going to call it writing footlocks? or are you going to
1: call it writing? Uh, you know what, it's power. all, it's all going to be under writing, fighting, even the writing camping, it'll just keep the numbers going forward because once you've established a brand, uh, you know, you, you just roll with the brand. But um, uh, so my YouTube channel has everything after episode 40. Uh, and eventually, I will spend a day backfilling. I'm, I'll be honest, I'm still adjusting to a world where social media is part of my job and not something that I occasionally do and feel guilty about. So um, uh, really, for Artifact Space, this is the first time I've put a heavy attempt at advertising. You know, um, <laughs> uh, I know, I know it actually makes me feel, it makes me feel modestly guilty just to say that out loud. Um, uh, and, um, and social media support and I won't pretend I didn't do writing fighting at least partly to, you know, raise audience, uh, interest and stuff like that. So now I have a YouTube channel. Um, so, uh, on my YouTube cha- channel, which has some very complicated alphanumeric sequence, people will just have to look up Christian Cameron, uh, on, on my, um, on my uh, uh, webpage, christiancameronauthor.com. That one is easy, christiancameronauthor.com. And they're all there, thanks to my brilliant webmaster, Rob McClellan, who is like one of the world's finest human beings, like yourself. Um, oh, and you. uh, <laughs> uh, he uh, he has sorted me out and kept me on the straight and narrow. And he's even categorized them like fighting in armor, Viking swords, wow. you know, like um, which is great. And makes it even easier for people to just get what they want.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I, I know Rob. Uh, gosh, from like back in the day. So when I when I first started reviewing, uh, it was actually, gosh, about six years ago. Uh, I was I was reading a lot of indie fiction, and he was helping a lot of the indie writers uh, I was reading with their websites.
1: Uh, yep. and so I, Rob, Rob and I go way back.
0: I mean, well, I, if, you can, if you can call six years way back, but <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, I, I actually read and am friends with a bunch of indie authors, and I, I honestly think that the dividing line between indie and trad is um, much less important than it used to be, and will oh, become yeah. even less important over the next few years. So, absolutely. Uh, uh, but uh, I Rob has changed my life, like literally, because he gave me a website. <laughs> I used to have a website that was sort of focused on reenacting, and I doubt it ever sold one book. Um, I don't know why I had that exact website, but Rob was like, "Wouldn't you like a reenact?" Uh, uh, sorry, wouldn't you like a website that caused people to buy your books? And, oh, that's a unique idea. Wow! Yeah, how many how many books deep were you at that point? <laughs> you're let's 43 not talk now. <laughs> let's, let's not talk about that. Uh, uh, however, I will I will say that because of people like Dirk Ashton and Ben Galley and and Rob, I'll probably put out The Sword, this novel that I keep mentioning instead of talking about Deep Black. Uh, I'll probably put out The Sword as an indie book myself. That'd be awesome. Um, and uh, partially just to see what that's like. Partially because I write so fast that editors hate me. <laughs> you you, you do put out quite a few novels. <laughs> uh, I, I have a really good fantasy novel that I really thought was coming out this year called Against All Gods. and. Uh, Galanz is holding it. I mean, they bought it, but they're holding it, waiting for artifact space. Because uh, it's it's super funny. When I I'm I'm going on a rant here. Pardon me. This is <laughs> this is my this is my rant. I'm on my soapbox. When I was young, reading fantasy and science fiction, and I didn't we didn't get to choose in my day. I mean, granted, there were dinosaurs walking the earth at the time, but uh, there just wasn't enough to be choosy so Mm -hmm. i read fitz lieber and i read mercedes lackey and i read andrew norton and i read robert heinlein like because that's what there was a shelf about this big of fantasy of speculative fiction total Mm -hmm. you you, you read what crossed that shelf and you read it all and you read it regardless of genre and i think frankly that was really good because um the world we live in where we're super divisive and people believe things and other people believe everything about that is a lie I happen to feel that's a product of being boresighted on one view of the world. Even if I, as a lefty, think that's the correct view of the world, that doesn't mean I shouldn't get out there and read other views of the world. And, you know, Mercedes Lackey and Robert Heinlein, they had very different views of the world. Uh, and I got them both. Um, and Fritz Lieber and Andrew Norton, very different views of the world. I got them both. So I, um, I liked the old way and I worry about genrefication. I worry about uh, going like, this is grimdark. Oh, I only read grimdark. Well, what if you miss that fantastic book by Jeanette Ng? Because you know what? She's not grimdark. That, that's never gonna cross your radar. Right. And I do, and I, and I, I really am concerned about that. And now I've forgotten your question because I went <laughs> off on my own tangent. So <laughs> you reminded me of my rant, but that wasn't an answer to your question, I admit it. <laughs> So good. <laughs> uh I don't even remember what my question was
0: now. I, I was I was so busy listening to your soapbox.
1: <laughs> oh well that that is my soapbox. I just want everybody to expand their horizons and go, yeah. like, you know, because if you think about it, and you named these guys yourself, but like you think about me and John Gwynn and Sebastian DeCastle, Evan Winter. I I, I could spin off a bunch, and I think we all write really good, solid, respectable, modern epic fantasy. Uh, it's not particularly grim, but it's not, but it's realistic. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've sort of got a thing and that's great. It's a good thing, but you know, I would totally encourage people to like, leave us behind for a while and go out there and try, try feminist sci-fi, try like get outside your comfort zone because all of speculative fiction is amazing. There are so many good writers. And I guess that's what I mean about the border between traditional publishing and and indie publishing there's so much good stuff out there in indie uh, some not so good stuff but let's leave that aside there's so much good stuff like you could never stop reading oh yeah ever oh, yeah. ever you could just read and read and read and read and read which if there are any teenagers out there who are having the the adolescence i had is the ideal world right you just want enough speculative fiction books to to fill all the minutes between your homework and your fencing uh, who, who needs sleep?
0: Oh, I remember my question. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to answer it though, because uh, it, it was about uh, when did you actually decide to have an author website with all the books you've written?
1: Oh, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I think uh, you
0: wanted to ignore that question.
1: <laughs> uh, no, no. Uh, it, yeah, I I suck at websites. I won't pretend otherwise. So it was Rob. It was Rob who put them all on one website, and I had to face how many there were. Up until then, I I just it was like a non-disclosure agreement with myself. I'm like, yeah, I have a, I have a few books.
0: There's maybe there's, more. There's a catalog somewhere.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: I gotcha. Um, so let's uh let's let's talk about uh let's talk about Artifact Space show shall, shall we? Uh, so I've I've read it. Uh, so several big name authors have read it. Uh, my buddy, Nick Borelli has read it and we have all loved it. But I want you to tell everybody what it's about. Tell us, tell us what can we expect in Artifact Space?
1: So, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not used to having as many interviews as I've had in the last two weeks. So I'm going to talk about them a little. So I was on Sci-Fi Saturday Night, a podcast I have actually listened to of my own free will. Um, uh, and the two gentlemen who do Sci-Fi Saturday Night, also enjoyed Artifact Space, but one of them gave me a shout line that I will I will wear forever. He called it Little Orphan Annie Joins the Merchant Space Marines. <laughs> and I thought, like, wow, why didn't I think of that? I could have sold the book. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so, you know, like I noticed that a number of people have called it military sci-fi, and I don't resent that, but it wasn't meant to be military. They're merchants. And uh, so, uh, you know, in the not so far future, uh, all the things we're worried about have happened to earth. Um, you know, the seas are mostly dead, although there's a character from Iceland who's seen a whale and that's totally on purpose because I have a whale theme that, it, it's really an imagery theme and I like that sort of thing in writing, but you, you may notice that pods of whales kind of run through conversation all the way through the book. Anyway, um, Uh, Yeah, the Earth's in a bad way, and at some point it got so bad that uh, everybody stopped fooling around and tried to save the human race by what was, you know, we think of the World War II generation in America and England and so on as sort of the greatest generation. And I try to make clear that there was a golden generation, there was a generation that went like, let's call them the Robert Heinlein generation, like, right, we're going to build the spaceships and we're going to get the hell out of here. And also we're going to make rules, and we're going to make rules that that are still there 600 years in the future about how you treat other human beings and so on and that's a that's a big deal so the characters talk about the age of scarcity which is a nice marxist term um uh because they don't have scarcity they they pretty much have what they want um they have medical care they have you know they're not they're not scraping for oxygen while living on an orbital station but you can see signs in their society that things haven't always been that great um like, th- there's a whole gender called androgens, and the androgens, they're not sexless at all. In fact, one of them is a major character, and obviously they have a sex life. Um, but they also have clearly been created to lower birth rate on on orbitals and in mining colonies, and that wasn't very nice, was it? So, so, so everything hasn't been great, I guess is the point. And it's also important to my world building that you realize that science, hard science, real science took a giant kick in the pants in the desperate attempt to save the human race, some leaps forward were made and then everybody stopped doing hard science to just build stuff. And you can totally see these pulses in human history. Look at what we created during World War II. We're still coasting on that pulse or the moonshot. a lot of you know a lot of computer science, came out of a single pulse of invention. So I'm playing on that a little because I didn't actually want their technology to be vastly beyond ours. Um, uh, it's actually important to one of the plots that uh, to some extent they're sort of recreating, uh, I don't want to say science, but investigative science, like just the the kind of science that modern economists think is useless, You know, where really smart people look at a Petri dish and go like, what could we grow in this just for fun? <laughs> okay that's not what the book's about what the book's about (laughs) is is a uh uh, a young woman who's an orphan uh who all her life has wanted to be a member of the service the the merchant service and it's going to be taken away from her for reasons that you're going to take all three books to understand why she has been so targeted but she's in an orphanage and it's a state orphanage and it sounds like a terrible place probably is. Uh, I read a little about state-run orphanages before I wrote the book. Um, and she she figures out a way to get out and to get herself into the service. And I deliberately, I, I'm going to give a bit of a spoiler here. So like turn off your your computer if you don't want to hear this. But I deliberately set the first six pages to make it look like maybe she's a terrorist who's going to blow up the spaceship, right? Doesn't it have a sort of weird like, who is this woman? And what the heck is she doing? Right? Um, And then once she's aboard, you realize all she's ever wanted in her life is to get aboard this spaceship. And, you know, she'll basically do anything. Um, uh, Another interviewer actually said it was all very Heinlein-esque. Interesting. I was a huge Heinlein fan as a a young person. Um, I totally admit that some of Heinlein is now problematic and I won't even go there, but I may be homaging to Heinlein? I don't know. What I wanted it to be was Star Trek. I wanted it to be hopeful. It's not the eternal war of black versus white, like Star Wars. It's um, it's trade and complex politics in space, while a solid, maybe even brilliant, but definitely solid young woman tries to overcome all the crap that has been dealt to her to have a career. I mean, and that, that may not sound that great. Uh, but she has to deal with some very serious crap. and I, I just I loved writing her character. And uh, by the way, that's not me. I could never overcome all that stuff. That was, again, from from people I know and people I know who've overcome adversity and stuff like that. And it was really fun to write because I wanted it to be hopeful. And when I say it was Star Trek and of Star Wars, I know that dichotomy is popular in the SFF world. And it's popular for a reason. Like Star Trek is about a hopeful future where we're all trying to be better, where there was progress, and it's not just in technology. Where you know Uhuru is on the bridge in 1967, like, and and like, wow, maybe there's going to be black people in space. Amazing. Um, And uh, definitely in that vein, maybe we have gotten better. You know, uh, even though we killed off planet Earth, maybe we learned. valuable lesson from that. Um, so it's about Marka and borrow, trying to make it and then uh, there's a giant political plot. I uh, I can't say otherwise, I write giant political plots, fantasy, sci fi historical no- novels. I like a giant political plot because I believe in nuance, and a million shades of gray. Because, um, you know, there's definitely good and evil in artifact space. But there's also just people trying to get theirs and people trying to get by and people making crap up as they go along. You,
0: you've never done that,
1: ever. <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, and then it's also a romance. Um, and I got some really nice comments from a friend of mine named Jenny Wertz, who's a way more famous fantasy author than I will probably ever be, uh, at, that I had really hit the romance thing. So I'm, I'm not ashamed to say I was aiming to make it be a like reverse uh, Jane Austen, like with uh, with some uh, gender role reversal. I like a good game as an author. Um, uh, And that was fun. And it's not for nothing that the protagonist male is called Dorcas because, you know, that's a good Charles Dickens name. Um, And there's even puns. Uh, Anyway, we'll leave that alone. Um, uh, And it's a it's a murder mystery. And so, the, the murder mystery is someone killed an alien race 100,000 years ago. And, like, does it even matter? <laughs> so, so you, you thought this whole book up while watching Little Women? Yeah. Uh, I, I fear I've told this story too many times, but I will happily tell it again. Um, I believe that the thought that sparked the cascade. I don't know if you've ever read cascade theory, but it's like about how the brain works in in neuroscience. And uh, the thought that sparked the cascade. So I'm watching the movie, and Amy, uh, I wish I could remember the actress's name, brilliant young actress, uh, is is basically saying to her lifelong friend, he says like, oh, you're a great artist, and she says, you know, I'm not, and you know what that means? That means that now I get to have some rich guys babies. That's my life, and Right, it's eighteen sixty-eight, and this is the world of an upper middle class woman. And I believe my cascade thought was, what if Amy was in space? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm not kidding. I'm like, like, I I I think my wife muttered something like, that hasn't changed as much as it should have, or something like that. And I'm like, yeah. How far in the future do we have to go? I think it just like literally, and then Kind of like the way um, once the Star Trek movies came out that the the ship just doesn't bang into warp speed, it kind of like Yeah, yeah that, that was how it felt, the jump to warp speed. And then all of a sudden I could see the whole thing. I could see the character, I could see the orphanage, I could see, anyway, the whole thing. The only thing that didn't jump into my head was the first six, seven pages uh, which again, I'm I'm spoiling, but which is her escape from the orphanage. Uh, those were suggested by Gillian Redfern and she was totally right. Uh, Gillian Redfern, if you don't know, is my editor at Galance. Um, She basically said, I, I started with her coming to the ship and Gillian said like, I wanna know how she got there. I wanna get the feeling of her flight from the orphanage. And she was right. That's why she's a great editor because she was right. And here's my advice to young writers believe your editor they are paid a lot of money to know more than you about how good your book will be I'm 58 and I still believe my editor there that's mine <laughs> is that your is that your mini sit box <laughs> yep I'm glad um, I
0: keep you amused oh <laughs> all, all the time you don't even have to talk to me I'll just follow you on Twitter and I'm like okay he's got he's got me for today especially with the writing fighting videos I, I don't. I remember which episode it was the other day, but you, you had a gif of you, just like I can still do everything.
1: <laughs> no, that wasn't me. That was from from uh, Dylan at um, at Fantasy po- uh ah, is it? It's the, the Aging Brain, Dylan oh, and Charles. Yeah, Dylan, I know. I know what you're talking about. Is it, is it Fantasy Fiction? Fantasy Fiction. Thank you. And they are great. And they uh, and Dylan is got is like the fastest gif in the West. I I I have I I would never take him on. Although, you know, Kareem Mahfouz and he's mm. also really fast on a GIF. And I think that they should have a GIF off at some point. Um, but you know, I just like to force other people to have challenges that I don't have to. Participate in.
0: <laughs> so, um, and, and now I know that you're, you're writing the sequel and, uh, you know, you've, you've used your amazing new novel that you've read, uh, in order to, to help you help you science a bit.
1: Yeah, cool. let, let me just say, uh, I've left yeah. out a huge thing, because I'm oh. I'm, tr- I'm trying to be witty and funny. And, I, and that is, uh, I was actually a backseat carrier aviator in the US Navy. So um, uh, years ago, I was at Galanzfest, uh and I spotted one of my great heroes in SFF, which is Alistair Reynolds. I worship the ground Alistair Reynolds walks on. And um, I am I'm not afraid of many things. And I certainly wasn't afraid of going and plunking down in the empty seat next to Alistair Reynolds and going all fanboy, all <laughs> fanboy all the time. I just gushed and I name dropped and I did whatever I could to catch his attention. And suddenly in the middle of my gush, he said, you were on aircraft carriers. And I said, yes. And he said, oh, I've always thought that aircraft carriers were like, you know, the closest we've come to big spaceships. and. Uh, Sometime in that conversation, he said something like, I don't swear he said these exact words, you should write a book, you know, with aircraft carrier like spaceships. And Jill Redfern leaned over from the seat behind me and said, I'd buy that. Now, if you're a professional speculative fiction writer, as I am, this is my only job. The words, I'll buy that from your editor, are super important words that never ever leave your head. <laughs> so, um, Alistair Reynolds played a major role and that's why I was so flattered that he gave a cover quote. Cause like, I really love his fiction. I think he's a genius. Um, and so, um, uh, like, yeah, Alistair Reynolds and the, and the Navy. And one of the things I won't say it drives me crazy, but you know, when you talked about writing fighting and stuff, I love authenticity. I, I sort of want authenticity to be my brand name when I write. So I try and get everything right. And it's not just the fighting it's cooking and dancing. I'm big on dancing in books. I try and put dancing in every book and singing and I don't know all those things. So when you try and do authenticity in science fiction, one of the things I tried to do right was the organized way in which air traffic works in the modern world. If you've ever flown, I don't know if you have in the front seat in the cockpit, you know that there's a, a whole bureaucratic world to handle your point A to point B air travel and you have to talk to the tower and then you have to talk to your local ATC your local air traffic controller and your uh, you know and then there's bigger ATCs and there's controllers out over the cent- central atlantic and there's radar stations that spot you and they talk to you and y- you get what i'm saying yeah and i have to assume that it would work that way in space And the last time I read a novel that really caught a flavor of that was actually CJ Sherry's Merchanter's Luck and Down Below Station. She seems to understand perfectly because she's got like beacons that talk to ships, ships talk to beacons, and she mad masterfully uh, also covered out the time dilation and the red and blue shift of information. Like if you come hurtling into a system, you're packing all the information you're coming into right? And it comes faster and faster until you start slowing down, because you're entering the data field from outside at speed. And she did that. And it's very good for building tension. It's really good for like, telling the reader, here it comes, this is going to be the fight scene. Here it comes, this is, this is the mystery, because none of the beacons are showing. Mm -hmm. And I I won't, I won't ignore the fact that I kind of stole some of that from CJ Sherry. Um, uh, But Also, my experience, especially in the Mediterranean, flying out at night over the Mediterranean or the Persian Gulf, talking to people, you know, talking to air traffic controls, talking to Iranian air traffic control, um, really fed how that should sound, how it should sound in the cockpit, how it should sound, you know, dealing with your ship. How do you land on a ship? Like space shuttles just land on the on the Enterprise. Nobody ever has to do anything. That's not my experience of landing on an aircraft carrier. So I tried to get all that across too. Probably too much information, but, um, and I think that's why people called it, a couple of people have called it a military science fiction novel. But to me, a military science fiction novel is about a war and there's mm-hmm. no war in this. Mm-hmm. This is This is merchant ships who occasionally have problems that are settled with violence, but mostly they're trying to get a cargo out and a cargo back. Yeah, yeah,
0: and and I'm and I'm one of those that called it a mil- military science fiction. It just had that feel. And I I don't I don't see military sci-fi as always having to be a war. Um, there there are battles, you know, um, in, in a majority <laughs> of them, um, but yeah, just it had that feel. And I think the fact that I knew you had experience with the navy, uh, you know, being in it for so long, and I could really feel, you know, that experience packed into the novel. Um, you know, especially because you use, you know, some of the lingo and, and even kind of poked fun at it, uh, which I think I believe i put in my,
1: uh, in my review. Yeah, that was actually great. And look, I don't mind it being called military science fiction. It's just that, um, the more I write, the more I worry about the addiction, all of speculative fiction has to violence. Yeah. And, uh, when I set out to write this, I was like, this is going to be cool because it's about merchants. And there is definitely violence, but there's also trade and and discovering new worlds and all that stuff that is so great in Star Trek. I keep s- mentioning Star Trek. Maybe that's a mistake. I don't know. It's not an homage to Star Trek, but there are definitely things that Star Trek did that I love, like going to a new planet every week. Yeah. And DeCastle, I'm pretty sure even even said
0: it was very Star Trek-y. He, 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 he did. Bless him. Bless him. <laughs> y'all y'all are, y'all are just such best friends i just i just know it. i know y'all like poking fun at each other too because uh especially on, on the outset of TV Archon. <laughs> he
1: is he is a great writer he writes a great fight scene he teases me remorselessly and apparently i like that
0: <laughs> you just keep asking for it exactly <laughs> all right so uh so tell me um can you tell, tell us a little bit about about your next novel um and you can talk about the sequel to artifact you can talk about the sword a little bit more if you want to or you can talk about maybe even the next thing that you're
1: writing but if you want to talk about all three you're
0: more than welcome to do that
1: as well so briefly the next book you see for me uh in speculative fiction will be against all gods that's already written that was written last year um bronze age fantasy uh definitely epic like Big screen, uh, largest monster I've ever created, bigger than an island. Good, good times. Um, wow. uh, but also kind of social commentary. Um, uh, got a race, a race, uh, a group, uh, a culture of. That's what I want. Culture of heroic pacifists. Um, who have to be conflicted about what's going on around them but there's all kinds of cultural reasons why they managed to survive in a super bad world and um uh, the the world of artifact space was in part created by my realization that much as i love the iliad uh the world of the iliad was hell for peasants and women like literally hell just hell it's really only good for the like nine warriors on the beach with achilles other everyone else this is the worst world ever um and uh I'd also become interested in what people call surveillance capitalism. Um, And uh, yeah, and I really don't want to go too much deeper than that. It is super adventury. It has giant fight scenes, and yet it manages to, I hope, capture a little bit of social commentary. And I'll also say just to pique some people's interest, it's in the same hermetical universe as Cold Iron and the Red Knight. And yes, I do intend to bring them all together in the end, because hey. the gates, because the gates connect them all, right? And in fact, by the time the Against All Gods trilogy is done, people who rem- have been following this since the Red Knight will see that we're actually moving forward, and something may happen that will maybe in- involve all of them. Um, I'm a big C.J. Sherry fan, can you tell? Because she, <laughs> I admit, she kind of did this with the Gates of Gabriel, but I'm using way more books to do it. Um, So uh, Against All Gods is the next thing you'll see. Uh, And right now I'm writing Deep Black, which is very complicated, because I need to bring home the 100,000-year-old murder mystery. But in short, and I think without spoilering Artifact Space, there are mysteries at the heart of Artifact Space. Uh, One of them is, like, what is Xenoglass? And why is it so great? And why can't human beings replicate it? And that's like at the very heart of of artifact space and it's in the first 50 pages so i don't think i'm ruining the book for anyone um you could just let that go but that would be a different writer i'm not letting it go so as the uh, as the protagonists discover what's gone on over the last 150 really after over the last million years and who the races they're dealing with are and what the stakes are they're going to gradually discover that they're basically bit players in an old, old, old problem. And um, maybe humanity isn't uh, tough enough to deal with what's about to come down on them. Fun. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then I, I I, also will say uh, in the third book, which I would imagine at the current rate, I won't write till like 2023. Uh, but in the third book that doesn't even have a title yet, um, uh, Marco will go home finally. Because it's a it's a four or five year voyage, right? And I'm not I'm not going to blur through that. And when she goes home, you will have the enormously satisfying. Uh, Marka gets to deal with the asshole who put her in this position from the first place, uh, and I think that's enormously satisfying to the reader. Oh yeah, like Absolutely. whether whether humanity is doomed or not, Marka is going to get her asshole in the end. <laughs> um, uh, I, did I? I don't think I, it sounds like a spoiler, but you if you know how I write i'm sorry i write that the good guys win i do not write that the bad guys win um and i just feel it's very satisfying to know that in the end she will go back to city dock her spaceship and go like okay i've had enough of your crap
0: yeah exactly oh that's that's gonna be fantastic yeah when you when you were talking about uh your, your first one uh, against all gods I, I i literally the first thing that popped into my mind have you ever played the game uh shadow of the colossus where you're you're this young i guess you call it a knight and you're fighting these giant creatures that are basically made of stone and you're the entire time you're, you're basically just scaling them until you get to a point where you can attack them and, and defeat them right that that's all i can imagine because you said it's you know bigger than an island and i'm like you know these things are your know, tallest skyscrapers and you've got to there's certain points on each one that you could actually climb on so you've got to really strategically find your moves
1: so you are a smart guy. I won't say it's exactly like that, but you're 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 on the right uh, you're on the right path. And w- when I was selling against all gods, the shout line was uh, a thousand years ago. Good fought evil for the possession of the souls of everyone in the world, and evil won. Like Sold. it's it's a bad <laughs> it's a bad world, and uh, your typical ragtag band of rebels, most of whom aren't good themselves. They've just been shafted by bad, and now they're pissed off. Um, they they team up with a group of very innocent pacifists to save the world. And while that shouldn't work, uh, there's reasons why it might work or maybe it won't work. Who knows? Or, or maybe it might and it won't. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, that, I, I'm afraid that's more like the book I write. Like, I, I believe the good guys should win, but it's never a total win because that's not what happens in the real world. Right. And that's, and that's not fun. You want them to lose sometimes. <laughs> but, I, I believe that Tolkien made a famous go back and
0: lick their wounds. <laughs> yeah.
1: Tol- Tolkien made a famous comment once about how uh, he, the Lord of the Rings wasn't an allegory of the second world War because if it was uh, uh, Saruman would have built his own ring. Uh, you know, the fall of Sauron would have poisoned the west and um and the the conflict would have just rolled on. and I, I may be misquoting, but uh, good point, Mr. Tolkien. I'm glad I'm glad you, you know, like it, it's never just over.
0: Right. Exactly. So I got two questions left for you. Uh one, what are some reads you've uh you've gone through this year that you would recommend? Uh and then what is your favorite historical
1: tidbit that you've learned recently? Uh so I'm reading Ben uh Galley's Shadow King right now. And I it's on the kitchen table. I could go and grab it. Uh delightful. Excellent. Um what else would I recommend? I hate this question because uh, the moment the stack of books goes away i it, it's gone out of my head uh, you know this question's always coming <laughs> uh, john john Gwynn's shadow of the gods uh got to say probably the best thing i've read this year uh in fact he made me spend money i ran out and bought a viking sword like uh what higher level of of praise can i offer than that um for people who read historical fiction uh matt harfley um And the title has just gone out of my head. So just look up Matt Harfley on the internet. He has a bunch of really good historical fiction. Um, uh, I'll just pump Jeanette Ng again, uh, Her Pendulum Sun, way outside my comfort zone uh, last 2019, I guess. Really good, really, really good book. But man, there's so much out there. And I have to warn you, I actually often detour to read really old books so uh, I recently reread all of CJ Sherry's uh, Merchanter's Luck Down Below Station, all those books. And I would recommend them to anyone. And I realize that's not fair to struggling artists who want me to mention their book right now. But like, holy crap, she's a good writer um, and uh, and a strong feminist writer. And I just want to throw this in for comedy's sake. The Pride of Chanur novels, which is like your house cat becomes a heroic space pirate. Um, have some of the most hilarious and accurate, damningly accurate feminist commentary I have ever run into in a science fiction novel, and I don't feel like she gets enough love for that, um, because in hers, like the women are warriors, the women cats are warriors, and the men like stay home on the farm and take care of the kids, and the the constant playing on these gender roles is beautiful and hilarious, and you can't trust men to do anything like you can't put them on a spaceship because they they just forget It's just the way they're made they're they're just really sex objects uh, <laughs> so freaking good um and and anyone who hasn't read the Pride Shinner, please it's it doesn't get much better than that um but john gwynn shadow of the gods i guess i i it, is it ridiculous to push a good friend's book Uh not at all. I I I recommend it all the friggin' time. Yeah. (laughs) It's
0: it's still it's still my number one read so far this year. So
1: Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. You read my book. Careful there, (laughs) John. Whoa. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Fine. So that's how friendships end right there. Christian's never gonna come on my channel again (laughs) Uh, you said you had two questions so that was one yeah your your second uh,
0: one uh your favorite historical tidbit you've learned recently and if it makes you feel any better while you're thinking about that one it's my favorite fantasy novel so
1: far this year does that make make it better that's good I like that 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 was good my favorite historical tidbit it's not a tidbit it's more like a a bigger factoid than that uh, I've been reading a lot about Carolingian Europe and Anglo-Saxon Europe and Viking Europe, and it's all John Gwynne's fault and partially Matthew Har- Harfley's fault. Um, uh, I got really interested in the period, and I hate having a hole in my knowledge. So I just went like, hey, I don't really know that much about this period. So, uh, you know, we call these the Dark Ages. We're in the like 7th, 8th, ninth century.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I was just blown away how by 750 AD, 750 how much control the Carolingian kings had and how much writing they had, how much, like, ah, oh, uh, uh, where are these dark ages? Like, I'm still looking for them. It, it's quite clear to me now that in fact, in many ways the Roman empire never went down because the Carolingians just picked it up and ran with it. And, you know, they did kind of conquer the whole of Europe. Um, uh, in fact, the author of the book I read came up with the catchphrase. phrase, uh, the, the Carolingians invented the idea of Europe by sort of binding like Italy and Gaul and whatever. Anyway, that was just freaking fascinating. How how much connectivity and how far people traveled and how frequently they traveled. And there's like English monks in Rome in 750. That's my factoid of the month. Nice. Well, uh, Christian, thank you as always for coming in chat with me. <laughs> Thanks for having me man. I you know it's never hard to talk to you even if you <laughs> even if you don't think my book is the best thing you've read this year. You know I, 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 No no, I you know what I say to people I'm I'm completely teasing you but no, you I don't know, you, I I always I feel, say to people, I feel like the Castel
0: now. <laughs> when
1: No no, that's you feel like me cuz I never tease him he just teases me. Um but uh I will say that no it's gone out of my head doesn't matter it's 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 gone uh (laughs) it's always fun to be teased by friends that i'll just leave it there there you
0: go so uh show us that beautiful cover again so artifact space comes out on the 24th
1: book one and what's the series called again arcane imperiae it's latin um uh, by the way i just have to say this about the cover see the ship. So, like, you've got to know this because you know everybody in fantasy and science fiction. That's actually how the ships are. I, I'm stunned. Like, uh, the cover artist drew the ship in my book. <laughs> hey, but I have a question for you. I know yeah. you want to get to the end of this, but I have a question for you. What did you like? And and maybe what didn't you like? Uh, like, it's about it's the book? Lot. Yeah. I don't know if there was much that I really didn't like. Um,
0: I really did like the fact that you didn't just have a giant war going on that you know, because you mentioned, you know, about how that's how military science fiction usually is. Uh that's usually how space operas are. I mean, it's usually just giant ships either colliding or attacking one another. It kind of it kind of reminded me a little bit of Project Tell Mary by Andy Weir. Um, you know, you, you've got this big unknown that you've really gotta uncover. Granted, you're doing it across three books and he did it all in one. Um
1: that's kind of the uh, which, way I roll.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, but I did really like the the whole, you know, Marka really trying to find her way around the ship, you know, because she just gets on and she's like, okay, now what do I do? And she's kind of just thrusts in different directions and she really just like comes out on top, like constantly. Granted, she's just got this this history that's just always looming and people are always kind of giving her the second glance, you know. Um but and you mentioned about the whole you know how do ships land i thought that was a really great addition to it because generally it's just ship landed crew gets off go to the next thing unload cargo etc and you actually take the time to meticulously go every step uh and and i don't you know i don't see a whole lot of that in novels uh especially you know clearly science fiction novels and i don't see you know markers in space Uh, i think the only one only one that I've read that actually has like
1: maybe meeting points, uh, I guess, The Interdependency by John Scalzi. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. i got to say that Scalzi does all this very well. Yeah. I, I mean, he does almost everything very well, to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, what actually keyed me in that direction is my favorite read of two years ago was every book of The Expanse. Like, I just motored through all those books, and they are so good. But I kept going, like, how, how, how did you land the spaceship like oh you just dock you mean there's 1500 other ships trying to dock but you just weave in between them and park it like come on how does that work <laughs> tell me daniel abraham <laughs> no i always want to know how everything works and maybe that's yeah. my embedding sin it may be both my virtue and my sin but whatever
0: see yeah th- th- it kind of like you do it kind of comes back to video games in a sense because i'm i'm not one of those that just like wants to go straight through the story like i want to see how everything works i want to see okay if i do this what happens all right if i do the reverse what happens so i'm like always like saving and overwriting and stuff my saves because i want to see like what you know A B C, D, don't know what ef and g do like and then i want to know if i go into this room am i going to die can I find stuff? <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, it was a long time ago in games, and I don't even remember what it was called. It could have been called Ace of Aces. It was a, it was a really nice four, two 2005 uh, World War II air-to-air combat game, and it was really good. And my best friend uh, had this game, which he guiltily played when his wife wasn't paying attention. And we got together for like three days at New Year's, and we always have. And he like said secretly, like, I've got a secret. And we snuck off to play it. And he basically said, I love the game, but I hate the fact that you have to learn how to land your Japanese fighter on an aircraft carrier. It's like a waste of time. I want to get to the air at air combat. I am the opposite. I was like, I have to actually land my plane on the carrier. That is fantastic. And I'll tell you that to me, the most amazing thing was that I did the standard pattern. I won't bore you with what it is, but there's a standard way to land on an aircraft carrier. uh, And I did it, even though I'm not a pilot. And it worked in the game. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> like, that's amazing. Anyway, that's Bessa, you, you felt fulfilled? <laughs> I did. I, felt, I think the word we're looking for here is validated. Ah, there you go. But um, no, I'm, I'm, go ahead. Uh, unless my experience in the Navy, in fact, made me entitled. But let's leave that aside. <laughs>
0: but yeah so everybody go out and pre-order artifact space it comes out on the 24th so just in seven days from this recording uh definitely looking forward to against all gods because uh, it just sounds amazing and definitely looking forward to the sequel and the third book and the other 22 that you apparently plan to
1: write in this in this, in this, uh, in this world um and again if you if yeah. COVID will stop cooping me up inside my house i'll slow down and write less how's that oh, okay
0: yeah sure Sure, sure sure, you will and then uh i'll also be looking forward to that tour of your basement
1: because i want to see all your miniatures and, all hey, your armor ne- and everything next time you you want to have me we will we will go right down those stairs and uh and we'll see the basement in oh. all its glory and my wife will disown me but <laughs> And my daughter my daughter will say they don't want to see how nerdy you are, Dad. That's disgusting. You win some, you lose some, right? Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I'm called a nerd every day here. It's fine. I, I I I glory in it. Like live live the dream. Exactly. I am well, the nerd that 17 year old me wanted to be.
0: <laughs> Living it to its fullest. <laughs> well, Christian, thank you. Uh we'll we'll clearly do this again. we're, we're gonna start doing this like I don't know. Every couple of months, if not less. So, hey,
1: uh, thanks for having me. You have been such a force multiplier in helping me have a career, and I really appreciate it. You're so welcome, and, and you, someday girl. I'll see you in person.
0: Absolutely, one of these days we're gonna make it happen, and we'll we'll share we'll share a croissant and uh, and we'll write together. Cool, <laughs> awesome. Will you uh, enjoy the rest of your week, and uh, best of luck with the release. Thank you very much. I will be
1: I will be fighting in armor this weekend.